Zechariah 12 and verse 10. This is a promise of God. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadad Remnant in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, high and low, all throughout every rank. And a private mourning. Verse 14, all the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, And they will no longer be remembered, and I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And it will come about that if anyone still prophesies, and his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also it will come about in that day, that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Amen. You may be seated. Jim Kelly, would you lead us in prayer?
thank you again for this opportunity. We remember Mac. Yes. Ask that you be with him today and just enable him to preach the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The situation with um, Kay and Chen and uh, Hannah, we just ask Father for your divine intervention here that you might bring about healing. Yes. Great wisdom for Kay and Chen in this. Thank you for these baptisms coming up, Father. Yes. Pray your Holy Spirit would use those times to minister to the family members and mm. just remind us, Lord, of what what's really taking place here how you you raise the dead oh, life, spiritual life to the dead what an amazing yes father we believe you could do that today yeah take this word and you could cause it to uh, just speak the heart of think of Lucy and mm. people she ministers to Pondering eternity We've been considering for the past several weeks this great passage in Zechariah concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw uh, a three-stage progression down through here. First of all, in verses 10 through 14 of chapter 12, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in conviction of sin. When the Holy Spirit begins to deal with a person's heart, He convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And one of the prayers that we could pray for those that are indifferent is that they'd begin to be troubled in their heart and to be convicted of sin. It's a blessed sign when you begin to feel some sense of conviction and realize that you're a sinner. I remember uh, uh, the one girl there from... Uh, Taiwan Ruth that was here uh, before she was a Buddhist you know and before she became a Christian she said uh, don't pray for me I don't want to become a Christian and uh, later you remember she said before I became a Christian she said I couldn't see that I had any sin now she said I feel like I have nothing but sin <laughs> but uh, that's the work of the Holy Spirit to to begin to convict of sin and to show us what we've done, what our sins have done to the Lord. And then secondly, we saw in verse 1 of chapter 13, cleansing from sin and uncleanness in the fountain of Christ's blood. And then thirdly, we saw in verses 2 to 6 of chapter 13, radical change of life as a result of God's dealings with us. We looked at this last time. God promises that in that day, and you notice this phrase here in verse 1, in that day a fountain will be opened. In verse 2, in, it will come about in that day. He promises that in that day that that fountain is open. Um, he will do three things for His people. First of all, He'll cut off the idols that they have formerly worshipped. Uh, we're told that in Ezekiel 36. I, he says, I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. One of the marks of true conversion is the idols start to fall. And uh, you begin to see things that are too important to you, things that are taking the place of God in one way or another in your life. And uh, you begin to uh, worship God alone. God 
uh, starts getting the priority straightened out when you become a Christian. And that goes all the way to an Abraham with his Isaac. God says, take him up here and kill him, sacrifice him. He was determined that he will be our God. He'll be the only one in our lives. He'll, he will have first place in our lives. Sometimes it takes a path of going down the wrong path for a while before you finally get to the miserable state where you realize God has to be my God. And uh, sometimes we have to eat bitter fruit to realize that. But uh, the fact is, He will not settle for anything less than being our God. And so the first thing He promises to do, not an ought to, He is not saying this ought to happen, He's saying this is what is, this will happen, I'm going to do this, I'll do it. Uh, he says he, He's going to destroy and kill every false god in our lives. And then secondly, he says that he will remove the false prophets from the midst of his people. Uh, God's people in this day that he's talking about will be, and that day is now, God's people will be uh, people who recognize and love the truth. They won't have any place for false prophets. Uh, False prophets will not get a hearing from God's people because... Uh, as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they don't, they don't know the voice of strangers. When you see people following in droves, some false prophet, they're not Christians. That's just the simple reality of the situation. Uh, that's a promise that he's made. And then thirdly, he promised that he will remove the unclean spirit from his people. Uh, that's what he says, I will, I will remove the unclean spirit. From the land, and so instead of um, having the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that Paul says in Ephesians two, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, instead of having that, Christians have the Holy Spirit working in them. Um, again, Ezekiel thirty-six: I'll put my spirit within them, and I'll cause them to walk in my statutes. And the fruit of all this will be what we said last week. The fruit of it will be what we call vehement repentance. I mean, the, to the point of concern for righteousness, to the point that uh, there's a violent dealing with sin and unrighteousness. And um, a vehement desire for righteousness and for truth. And that's what we looked at in verses 3 through 6. Well, today then, we come to verses 7 to 9, down to the end of the chapter. And all of a sudden, we're shocked here in verse 7 by an abrupt transition of thought. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God is speaking directly here. And He's calling for a sword. God is calling for a sword against His shepherd. Now, who is this shepherd? And what is this sword? And we don't have to be in doubt about this. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. This verse is quoted a couple times in the Gospels, but we'll look at Matthew's account. I think the other one maybe, I believe it's in Mark. Matthew 26, it is in Mark. Matthew 26 and verse 30 and 31. Um, we're told that after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away or stumble, same word, because of me this night, for it is written, and he quotes this verse in Zechariah, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. They shall be scattered. So he tells them ahead of time, this is going to happen. All of you. Not just Peter was going to deny the Lord, but they were all going to forsake him and flee. And so the shepherd here in Zechariah, back to Zechariah 13, the shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and the sword represents the stroke of judgment and death. Now, 
this is an amazing and wonderful thing. And it's grace beyond our ability to comprehend or our ability to tell that God calls for a sword to strike His shepherd. So I want us this morning to consider, Lord willing, first of all the shepherd and secondly the sword. So first of all the shepherd. Notice this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now, first thing I want to say is that Zechariah has already talked to us about the shepherd. And if you were here when we were going through uh, chapter 11, you remember, I hope, some, some about this. Let's just turn back. In, back in chapter 11, God had told Zechariah to act out the part of a faithful shepherd to his people. And he was, what he was doing was, in a prophetic vision of some sort, he was um, representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember what's said about this shepherd. He comes and he pastures, um, verse 4, he pastures a flock that is doomed to slaughter. The Lord Jesus came and he came as the shepherd of Israel. You remember what he said? I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he shepherded the whole nation in one sense. He shepherded them. But they were a flock doomed to slaughter. By and large, the Jewish nation in a few years was going to be wiped off the face of the earth. But he came and faithfully shepherded them anyway. Now this shepherd in chapter 11 that we looked at, he was a divine shepherd. He's not like any other shepherd. Because first of all, he has the power to annihilate other shepherds. You remember that? Uh, verse 8, I annihilated the three shepherds in one month. It's symbolical language here. But uh, this shepherd has that power. He also has the power to annul or break the covenants that he has made with the people. Notice verse 10. Uh, I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to annul or break my covenant, which I had made. Now this shepherd had made the covenant. Who is this shepherd? He's divine. He's a divine shepherd if he's the one that made the covenant with the people. And what else about this shepherd? Well, this shepherd was going to be valued at 30 pieces of silver. Uh, we've already talked then, or Zechariah has already talked about this shepherd. Uh, and it's amazing how much the Old Testament prophecies that are referring to the coming Messiah talk, talk about Him as being a shepherd. Let's just look at a few of these. Uh, these are the times that we need to... You know, we don't get as much exposure as we should to the Old Testament. And these are the times that we ought to look and take the time to look at these things a little bit. So first of all, in Ezekiel chapter 34... God is speaking of a day that's coming, and He says in chapter 34 and verse 23, He says, I will set over them one shepherd. I'll set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now David was going to be dead and gone for hundreds of years. What's He mean? This servant that was going to come in the lineage of David, the Messiah in other words. And He calls him a shepherd. He says, I'll set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Isn't that an encouraging thing? And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's the new covenant. And eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. <clears throat> and then, and we've talked about this before, the children of God have no reason to be afraid of anything. And then in Ezekiel chapter 37, <coughs> Ezekiel 37 and verses 23 to 28. <coughs> Mona, can I have another cough drop? I think I'm going to 
it happens suddenly and if I ever start coughing, I won't quit. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 23 to 28. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or their with their detestable thing. Now, isn't that the same thing we saw in Zechariah, isn't it? Or with any of their transgressions. <coughs> but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. There will be a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Verse 23. And they will be my people and I will be their God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. <coughs> and they shall live <coughs> on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. <coughs> then I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Notice he's talking here about an everlasting covenant. That's the new covenant. And he's talking about this great prince that will come, this king after the lineage of David who will be their one shepherd. You remember what Jesus said? There's going to be one flock. And they're going to be gathered in. <clears throat> and even Jews and Gentiles will be together in one flock and there will be one shepherd over them. And then in Micah chapter 5, Micah 5. I love this one. <clears throat> Just think, if you were a Jew, reading these, these things hundreds of years before the Messiah came, what would you have thought? And this is what God says in Micah 5 and verse 2. But as for you... Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Now from Bethlehem, he said God told where he was going to be born. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. It tells you more about the shepherd. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who was in, is in labor has born a child. And then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. So again, this prophecy concerning the shepherd. <clears throat> this is quoted in the New Testament. He will shepherd his people Israel. And then, in, uh, of course, we looked at the two chapters in Zechariah that talk about the shepherd, but... Let's just look at the verses in the New Testament in John chapter 10. And to do justice with it to this, we'd have to spend weeks in just in John 10. But just to notice, the Lord Jesus identifies himself as this shepherd that was promised. In verse 11, I am the shepherd. I'm the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And again in verse 14, I'm the shepherd. I am the shepherd. 
the good shepherd. And so he identifies himself as the shepherd of his people here in John chapter 10. And if you realize adequately all the things that were said in the Old Testament about this shepherd, you'd realize this is a claim to deity right here, just to say that he's a shepherd. He's saying that. But he's the good shepherd. Then in Hebrews 13, just have a couple more verses to look at here. Really, you need to jot these down and go back and meditate on them if you have never noticed them before. Hebrews 13 and verse 20 and 21. He says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Not a shepherd, but the shepherd again. And he's the great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will. And so on. So here He is, the great shepherd. And then one more in 1 Peter 5. He's exhorting the elders in verse 1. And this is what He tells the elders to do. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. That's the word pastor. And it's related to our word pasture. Shepherd the flock of God among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, here again, he's the shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So all all pastors, which means shepherds, all pastors are under shepherds and he is the chief shepherd. So here, he's the good shepherd, he's the great shepherd, and he's the chief shepherd. And just to think about this, the Lord... To be able to say concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord is my shepherd. I mean, when you can say that, because what has to do, I mean, if you are one of His sheep, nothing can be more wonderful that you could imagine than that. If you're a sheep and you've got a shepherd like Christ, I mean, someone that doesn't take good care of his flocks, one thing that happens, he lets disease grow and doesn't do anything about it. He lets them wander off and get in trouble and get killed. But whenever you've got a shepherd that is the Lord Jesus Christ, well, what does the psalmist say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. There's not anything that I'm going to lack with a shepherd like this. He will take care of me. If I begin to stray... He'll go after me and get me and bring me back. He's my shepherd. He'll protect me. His rod and his staff comfort me. Just the thought that he's got a rod. That's a comfort to a Christian. I'm glad about that. And he'll feed me and take care of me even in the presence of my enemies. So provision, care, protection, guidance. Jesus said, I... I go out in front of them and they follow me. I lead them. I go before them. <clears throat> he guides us. The Lord is my shepherd. So, what a glorious thing. All that's involved in this. That the shepherd, when we're talking about Old Testament now, the Old Testament looking forward to the one, this Messiah that was coming. And there's a lot of things said about him. He's called the branch. He's this righteous branch that will spring out of dry ground. Just come out of nowhere, you know, when there's no hope. There's no hope for Israel, and all of a sudden this little branch comes up. Well, what's he going to do? You know, born in in Bethlehem and grown up in Nazareth. What's that little branch going to do? Or they look ahead and they say, there's a king that's coming. He's called the king. But here he's called the shepherd. And the one that is coming... This Messiah that is coming is going to be a shepherd, and he's going to be a shepherd who will actually lay down his life to save the sheep. So, 
He's the shepherd. But it's not just that He's my shepherd. God says that He's His shepherd. Did you notice that here? God says to the sore, back in Zechariah, Awake, O sword, verse 7, against my shepherd. He was the one that God put in charge of shepherding His people. And in that sense, He's God's shepherd. God put Him in charge. And what a perfect shepherd He was. And the incredible thing is, when you have a shepherd that's perfectly pleasing to you, why in the world would you call for a sword to strike him? <clears throat> Amazing. Notice what else is said about the shepherd. He's called, first of all, the man. Did you see that? Verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man. The Lord Jesus Christ, this shepherd that was coming, was going to be a man. He's going to be one of us, a human being. In fact, he would be the man. He's not just a man, but he's the man. And um, this is an amazing thing, isn't it? In fact, Pilate, unknowing to himself, when Jesus is standing there with the, with the crown of thorns and the robe, he says, Behold, the man. There was the man. And um, we see so much of the beauty of, <clears throat> of what happened, of just, just the person of Christ. Behold, the man. And this was the man who was going to die for his people. Uh, a much sadder statement, but in a way it's one that tells us so much about the cross. Peter, cursing, swearing, I don't know the man. The man. And yet the Lord is dying for Peter. On that cross. So he is, this shepherd is called the man, but look at what else is said about him. <clears throat> he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate. The authorized version says, My fellow. Same idea, my fellow. Uh, the NIV <clears throat> translates it. The man who is close to me. They're trying to capture the meaning of this word. The man that's, he's on par with me. He's close to me. He's my fellow. He's my associate. God doesn't have associates. He doesn't have fellows. He doesn't have people that are standing. And it, this is amazing. The RSV, in some ways, not a very good translation in some areas, but it nails it here. It says, the man who stands next to me. He's right on level with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And there He is, my associate. Here He is standing next to God. This shepherd was not only a man. He was God's fellow. He was God's associate. And he was standing next to God. That's, that's who this shepherd was. In other words, this shepherd was divine as well as human. And it's interesting, some of the Jewish commentators on this verse, they, they, they even take it this way. They say this man was pretending to be divine. But, but the, the way they interpret this idea, the man, my fellow, or my associate, they say this is somebody that claimed to be divine. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> now, isn't this what we have seen all along? That's the same shepherd we looked at in chapter 11. You remember what? They priced him. They gave him his wages, 30 pieces of silver. And you remember what God said? The, the value at which they valued me. God speaking. And then in, back in verse 10 of chapter 12, they shall look, God speaking, He says, they shall look upon me whom they pierced. Isn't this amazing? Right down through the book of Zechariah, things that were unthinkable for a Jew, when God would say that He was going to be pierced and that men were going to pierce Him, it's amazing. And here He's talking about this shepherd, and He says, now this shepherd is a man, but He's my associate, He's, on, he's my fellow, He's on my level. Oh, what a thing this is. 
he stands next to me. And that's exactly what Jesus said in the New Testament. Right there in John 10. Now you remember he's talking about the shepherd. And he's talking about himself dying. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What else did he say? I and my father are one. Right in the same place. That he's talking about his death as a shepherd. He's talking about his being God's fellow. Right there in the very same discourse. One with God. What a shepherd this is. And I say here we have a divine shepherd who is a man who's on par with God. And he's a perfect shepherd and he's done everything exactly right. Now here's the amazing thing. We've got God saying, Awake, O sword. Call him for this sword to wake up and to strike his shepherd. God calling for it. So let's look here then at the sword. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Notice as far as we know, no literal sword ever touched the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a spear put into his side. He was, he was scourged and so on, but there was no sword. In other words, the sword here is a symbol of the total reality of what happens. It represents all the things that happened to him. And especially in this case, I think the sword represents judgment or justice. You remember in Romans 13? Uh, I think we ought to just take the time. We're not. We're almost finished. In Romans 13 and verse 4. I guess we're not almost finished, but we're. Paul said that kind of thing. <laughs> Finally, my brother. <laughs> before he wrote three or four more chapters. Romans 13 and verse 4. Paul's talking about rulers and governments, and he says in verse 3, Do you want to have no fear of the authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword. There's the sword, see, for nothing. Now it might be, it's not necessarily a, a sword. It might have. It might be a hangman's noose or an electric chair or a fine or an imprisonment or something like that. But all that is summed up in this word, the sword. And it has to do with justice being administered. You see that? It beareth not the sword for nothing. <clears throat> it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath. Now that's what I want us to get. It brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. What in the world is wrath in Paul's mind? You think the government's real mad at this guy? What is wrath? Wrath has to do with with broken law needing to be satisfied. And the picture is, is this sword of justice that brings down judgment and wrath, that is, satisfaction of justice upon the offender. You see that idea? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. <clears throat> the big thing for us to get, if we're still back in Zechariah 13, the big thing for us to get in verse 7, though, is to realize that God is the one that's calling for this sword. God says to the sword, Awake, O sword. Now you just think of the things that were done to the Lord Jesus Christ. The envy of those Jewish rulers. It says that they envied Him. They hated Him because out of envy they did these things. <clears throat> the cowardice of Pilate. You know, he washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of His blood. It's not that easy to get off the hook for what He did. The mocking and scourging of the Roman soldiers. Behind that, the malignant hatred and malice of Satan. All of those things, all of those things had been called for by God. He says, wake up, O sword. Strike the shepherd. All of those things had been called for by God. God was the one behind them ultimately. Now, isn't this amazing? Acts chapter 4. This is a verse that ought to be imprinted on your heart and mind. 
these verses in Acts chapter 4. The disciples had been threatened and told not to speak anymore. And it says in verse 24 of Acts 4, When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David thy servant did say, and they quote from the Old Testament, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ, or His Anointed One. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against Thy holy servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint, that's the word Christ, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, now look at verse 28, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. Isn't it amazing? Wicked men can be pouring out their hatred and malice against God, and right while they're doing it, they're doing whatever His hand and His purpose predestined to occur. What a God that we have. Even Satan. Satan can be doing his worst to try to destroy God's purposes. And right while he's doing it, he's fulfilling God's purposes. Fulfilling what God has determined ahead of time. We have a lot of wrong ideas today about what God is like. You have this idea, God wants to do this or that or the other. He's wanting to do it, but the devil is preventing him from doing it. That's an idea that's very, very common. Um, You know, uh, I've heard this idea, God's doing all He can. You know, people have this. In fact, I heard a woman say this. She was thinking about it. She said, something's not right here. She didn't understand the answer. But she said, now God's doing all that He can to save everybody. And the devil's doing all that He can to get people to go to hell and choose the wrong way. And she said, that looks like to me the devil's winning. Well, if you think that God is doing everything that He can and He's frustrated and He's impotent, then the devil is winning, you see. That's not the way it is. God is working out His purposes to save His people and to perfect them. The only reason He hasn't put the devil in hell already is that He's got more work for Him to do. You see that? What a thing that we have the privilege. Nathan Barry was just... uh, talking to Jim and me last Wednesday night about the privilege of that we get to witness to people. I mean, you don't think the Holy Spirit, you don't think God could, you know, providentially have them pick up a Bible or something and start reading it and the Holy Spirit save them. He's done that before. He could do that. But instead, he he gives us the privilege of getting to witness to them. God does whatever He pleases in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. Whatever He pleases. There's nothing that He tries to do and doesn't get accomplished. He does whatever He pleases. The idea that He's frustrated, I actually heard one preacher actually do this. He put His hands together and says, His hands are tied. His hands are tied. God's hands are tied. Right when the devil is doing his worst, God is fulfilling his purposes. So the sovereignty of God extends, and we learn that from this passage here in Zechariah 13. The sovereignty of God extends even over the sins of men. And how thankful we can be that that's the case. I mean, what if you went out with some of the kooks that are going around on the streets nowadays, what if you had to think of your daughter being out there and God not in control of evil? What would that be like? He controls all the evil and 
Right when Satan was doing his worst, God was doing his best. Well, there's something else about this sword that's significant. Very significant. And that is, not only does God call for the sword, He actually wields the sword. He holds the sword. Did you notice this in Matthew 26? And now we really are getting close to the end. You notice in Matthew 26, and when Jesus quoted Zechariah, He changed it a little bit. And He had the right to do that. We don't, but He did. <laughs> he changed it a little bit. Matthew 26 again, back there. In verse 30 and 31. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of Me this night, for it is written... Now here He quotes... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Now what's what's different? What's changed? Hmm? Well, the verb tense has changed. Uh, I will strike, but what else? The subject has changed. That's the big thing. The subject has changed. God says, I will strike the shepherd. Now I didn't say that in Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Not only does God call for the sword, He's the one ultimately who wields the sword. He's the one who struck the Lord Jesus Christ. Now how could that be? Well, that's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? What's the word gospel mean? It means good news. What is the good news? Well, to know what the good news is, you've got to know what the bad news is. The bad news is, is that you and I are sinners, and God is a holy, righteous judge who cannot forgive sin. Now that is shocking to people to think God can't forgive sin. He cannot forgive sin. What do we mean by that? Well, that illustration of the judge again. Here's a guy. You come home and find your family butchered, and they catch the guy, and he goes before the judge, and everybody's sitting in there, and the judge says, well, I'm a very loving person. You can go free. You'd say that's a wicked judge that would do that. He's as wicked as the guy that did the crime. And the Bible says, he that justifies the wicked, which is what that would be, what that judge did, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to God. In other words, God cannot just forgive and forget he cannot forgive sin because of his character and so i'm a sinner and i'm dealing with an all holy god who cannot forgive sin because justice has to be satisfied he's a righteous judge and the gospel is is that god the good news is that god so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He delivered Him up to die for those sins so that that law could be satisfied, so that His character could be satisfied, so that the penalty could be paid for those sins. God smote the shepherd. And let's just look at this in closing. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and what a wonderful chapter this is. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. That's what we were talking about earlier. He has no form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should desire or be attracted to Him. Now, we don't know what the Lord Jesus looked like, but I know one thing from this Scripture. He doesn't look like that picture you've got in your mind. We know better than that. That's the one thing. Isn't it amazing? We don't know what He looked like, but the one thing we do know about Him is the very thing that the world contradicts totally. There's nothing about Him to be attractive It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, just to see what kind of what kind of person did God make when it, when 
when the Lord fashioned the physical body of Christ, what did he look like? We know he wasn't attractive. They say about the Apostle Paul, and this is just uh, tradition, may not be right, but they said that he was a short guy, and he had bushy eyebrows that met in the center. I tend to think that might be right. Maybe that's the way Paul looked. But we don't have any idea how Jesus looked, except that he, there was nothing about him that we should be attracted to him. He wasn't that way. He was, here's what he was, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows <clears throat> and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, and we dis, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Listen, everybody that's listening to this, if you are in hell a thousand years from now, one of your greatest regrets is that Jesus bore our sorrows and sin, and you don't have to go to hell. He bore our sins and our sorrows and made them His very own. He bore the burden to Calvary, suffered and died alone. <clears throat> he Himself bore our griefs and our sorrows He carried. You don't have to carry them if you'll just put your trust in Him and confess and forsake those sins and believe in Him. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now the Jews, you know, they saw anybody that hangs on the tree as a curse of God. They viewed Him as a curse of God, not in the right way. They said He's a curse of God in the sense God, God hates Him, God doesn't want Him. That's the opposite thing. He's my shepherd. God loved Him. He's a perfect shepherd. He was a curse of God in the sense that God put the curse upon Him and smote Him for our sins. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening of our peace fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord... Now get that. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Yet He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, yet with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. They hated me without a cause. Verse 10. <clears throat> but the Lord was pleased to crush him. You see that? I will smite the shepherd. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Not Pilate, not the Romans, not the Jews, not the devil. God was pleased to crush him. God smote the shepherd in satisfaction of his justice so that he could save the sheep. That's what happened. <clears throat> The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep and paid the penalty for their sins so that God could be a righteous judge and still forgive you. He actually can now forgive you because the debt of sin has been paid. That was the true burden that Jesus bore. Why do you think Jesus was sweating drops of blood in the garden? It was not because He was going to be crucified. Thousands, we've talked about this, thousands of men have been crucified. There have been girls that have died a worse death than crucifixion. You read some of the accounts of martyrs in church history, there have been girls, young girls that believed in Christ that have gone to their death. Things that are unspeakable, I couldn't even tell you what was done to them. They have suffered worse than Christ did in the sense of what appears outwardly to man. 
Why was he having such a hard time in the garden, sweating drops of blood? Because what he was facing was a whole lot more than dying on a cross. Thousands of people died on crosses. That happened in the Roman Empire all the time. What he was facing was, was bearing the wrath of Almighty God unmixed in the cup of his judgment. That's why he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, <clears throat> I think it's probably true that Jesus did suffer more physically even than any man has ever suffered. But it wasn't because of the things that you can see outwardly. It was because the sins of all of his people were being laid upon him. And there's a, you realize there's a physical aspect to hell as well as a spiritual. Because God's going to raise our bodies. Those that did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who did the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And men sinned as men, that is, with the body, not just a disembodied spirit, and they will be judged as men with a body, not just a disembodied spirit. The whole man will suffer in hell. The whole man will be blessed in heaven. God raised the whole body up. We're not just going to be disembodied spirits floating around in heaven. Heaven's going to look a whole lot more physical. You know, we've got the idea that matter's evil, and it's not. God, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And we're going to have glorified bodies. <clears throat> anyway, Jesus on the cross died. He suffered, I think, physically more than any man ever suffered, but not the things you can see outwardly. And He suffered, the real suffering was in the spiritual realm, bearing the wrath of God. That's why the world goes dark for three hours because of what was happening on the cross and the outpouring of the wrath of God. You know, it's something. He died a miraculous death. His death was miraculous. He really was. His death was miraculous. It says in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, He poured out His soul to death. He poured out His soul isn't that something to think of? He just took it and he took his soul and poured it out. He said, I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. No man has power to die except Christ. He had power to lay down his life. Everybody else has got to. They're gonna, it's going to be wrenched away from you whether you want it or not. You don't even have it. But he had power to lay it down. He's the only one who ever did. He poured out his soul unto death. Well, these are amazing verses, aren't they? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate. I'll smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Lord willing, we'll go on next time consider more. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we confess we don't even know... we can, we, in a way, we're not worthy to even read these verses. To have the Almighty God, the Ancient of Days, speak of any man as his associate, his fellow, the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, the Chief Shepherd, the One Shepherd that has ever been, the Holy and Faithful and True, and to have the Almighty Ancient of Days call for a sword and say, I'm going to strike him. Lord, we marvel that it pleased you to bruise the shepherd and uh, to crush him for our iniquities and for our sins. I pray that no one here will someday in hell have to look back and remember that they heard about such a Savior and they rejected him. Lord, I pray for conviction of your Holy Spirit, I pray for opening of eyes. Lord, we don't know if we have tomorrow. And uh, I pray that uh, instead of a ho-hum, uh, let's get on to the foolishness of this life and this world. I pray that there'd be someone who would go to their room and get on their knees and cry out to you and say, Oh Lord, if this is true, uh, would you save me? Would you have mercy upon me? We, uh, 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have our meal together. Let's continue our fellowship and rejoicing in the things of God.